0: Hearing Mamas Tribe host, Gretchen is a mother of five children, three of whom have hearing loss. Listen to Gretchen interviews other hearing mamas and maybe an occasional dad or child, too. Other guests will include people who have been instrumental in helping children who are deaf or hard of hearing. Thrive, including audiologists, speech therapists, teachers of the deaf, doctors, and other professionals. Due to the nature of this subject, some of the names and identifying features have been changed to protect their identities. But the voices and the stories are their own. This podcast is intended for families to share their own personal journeys without judgment. Please respect and honor
1: each family's choices. All information presented is educational and should not be misconstrued as personal medical advice.
0: Hi, Courtney. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I actually met Courtney three years ago at the Cochlear Celebration in Nashville, and I was just drawn to her. So I'm just really excited that we've kept this friendship going and really excited to interview you today. So start maybe by sharing a little bit about your family.
1: Hey, Gretchen. Um, Thanks for having me. Uh, So- we met at the cochlear convention because our oldest daughter, Abigail, who is now four, was born with profound hearing loss. We actually think it was ototoxicity. She ended up being a NICU baby and was dosed on gentamicin. Which as a new parent, all of those things are really intimidating to navigate and go through. We decided to get her implanted. She was implanted on one side at ten months old, and then implanted with her second implant at eighteen months old. We had moved from denver where we had abigail and then moved back to st louis uh, where my husband and i were originally from for the moog center for deaf education
0: had she not been diagnosed with profound hair loss do you think you would have stayed in denver or eventually ended up back in st louis because it was your your hometown.
1: I think we would have stayed in Denver. We had just built a new home and that was going to be the home that we were going to raise all of our babies in and then when we got the diagnosis and diving into just Colorado's services that are provided and what would have to be private pay, we reached out to one of our friends when we started telling everybody about the diagnosis and he actually had a really good friend I was a teacher at the MOOC Center for Deaf Education. So we reached out to her and we set up an interview and a tour with the school. I came home. Abby was, I I think she was like maybe two and a half or three months old when I toured MOOC. And as I was walking through the hallways with the director holding my newborn baby with these ringing hearing aids in her ear, I was just walking back past classroom after classroom of kids with hearing devices on and I could hear them speak and laugh and play with each other. Their speech was phenomenal. And just watching all of the different tables and the education set up there that they have is amazing. And so I was just like, Zach, we have to move home. And so when I flew back to Denver, I just said, I felt like this was God slapping us in the face Like there was just too many signs pulling us back home to St. Louis. And this was just the icing on the cake. And we packed up and we were back here by the time she was eight months old. Wow. So fast, super fast.
0: I don't know anything about the MOOC school. So like, when did she start there? How did the early invention work when you got there? Cause obviously you did a good job in that you had her identified and had hearing aids on her really early.
1: She had her hearing aids by the time she was seven weeks old. So quickly identified. And that was just like a gut feeling. She had failed the newborn hearing screening. We have a a video of her as right when she was in the incubator, I couldn't meet her right away. But Zach went over and she was crying and he just started singing to her. And she kind of turned her head and instantly calmed down. And so that was for us our evidence that she could hear. And then by the time her NICU stay was over, she had failed her newborn hearing screening. And it was just a gut feeling that I needed to follow up. Maybe that's the nurse that's in me of just, you need to follow up. But I had called and made an appointment to follow up when she was 10 days old. And that's when we got the diagnosis. And so we just got the hearing aids and then just started moving down the line of next steps but in terms of early intervention for moog once they're identified moog will get involved through missouri first steps they knew we were coming so the first week that we had moved we haven't even unpacked our boxes and we had our first home visit with our deaf educator in home i want to say until they're 18 months old they come once a week into your home and they just coach you through how to talk to playing with toys with the kids how to talk like read a book, but talk about the picture and like the texture and all of the things that kind of go into just giving these kids more and more language and exposure to uh, sound. And then at 18 months, you go to the school for half days. And those are tailored education where they have speech, and they have language, and then they have different centers, the kids are divided into small groups, and they're just constantly talking and giving this kid exposure audiology is at the school it's provided at the school so if there's issues with devices or anything like that if they need to do a hearing test like on a regular basis especially during cochlear implant mapping or things like that they're just pulled out of their school day so it's like this kind of this boutique environment where they just really take care of all of the kids and the families and their goal is to get the families to understand what the kids need instead of giving them the overwhelm of all of the running around and all of the appointments that go into hearing loss. And they do a fantastic job.
0: Sounds like Shangri-La. Actually, I didn't even actually know that existed. And I just think about all the appointments and the time. And when my oldest was diagnosed with hearing loss, we lived in LA, but it was like an hour to downtown. And then when my third was diagnosed, we were living in a small town and it was like two and a half hours, sometimes with the audiologist. how many hours I spent driving my kids around it. Maybe I should have just moved to St. Louis. I didn't know it existed. And maybe that would have it, it was, my, decreased my parental stress significantly. Yeah.
1: When we were in Denver, even just those first eight months, I would drive an hour to our the ABT therapist. Then I would go to audiology at a hospital on a different side of town. And it was a, a bunch of running around and I was working night shift as a nurse at the time. And I was still working full-time and we just had to have a really hard conversation on whether I could continue working or not and what that would make life look like. And then moving to St. Louis, I was still able to work and keep that. It allowed me the sense of, I can just be mom. I mm-hmm. can support her and I can give the professionals all of the support they need to help Abby be as successful as she can be.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. Cause it is sometimes it becomes our identity, right? Like We're trying to help these kids so much that we end up giving you have to, I had to quit my job. There's a lot of things that many moms I've talked to have had to quit their jobs or change their circumstances life. And you guys chose to change your location, but the change in the location really helped those things. What would you say? What would you say to a parent who is struggling with that choice? Like what, where do I get services? What's the next best step? Do you have any advice for that parent who's listening to this thinking, oh my goodness, I can't move to St. Louis, but what can I do to give my child
1: a great start? Admittedly, just... And anytime you're with the the kiddo, just keep your house quiet and just talk to them, read them stories, play books with them. And just, I'm a talker, but like, I'm a naturally I'm a talker. I'm very social. But at the end of some days I was like, Courtney, stop talking. Like I would be tired of hearing myself talk. That's how much you end up talking to these children and they're better for it. Right. It's only, it's really short term. And then they start getting successful and thriving and things like that, but keep their processors and implants and hearing aids on as much as possible. So as many hours a day as you can keep them on so that they're exposed to sound and your voice, and then just talk to them and talk to them and talk to them and talk to them.
0: (laughs) Did you have a hard time keeping her processors on? Did you have to do anything special to that? Or she never really... Uh, that never really been an issue? The
1: hearing aids were a little bit more challenging than the implants, but I think we had figured out, we, um, the bling bow, they're soft and real thin and they're stretchy. So from the time she was a newborn, we just got bling bows and they would sit over her implants and then we used, or her hearing aids. And then we used the pilot caps as well. There's a shop on Etsy that makes some really cute ones. And then the baby turbans. So we just always had something on her head. And as soon as she would try and take it off, we would put it back on. So She didn't really have a choice to take it off, even if she didn't like it, which might sound terrible. But by the time she was implanted, she was so used to having a headband or a turban on her head and the process or the hearing aids behind her ears that when the processors came on, it just, it wasn't even a thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's good to know. Those are good tips. Cause we use pilot caps too. I sometimes a saving grace to keep those on those kiddos. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking before we started taping about just the feeling of St. Louis. Like I liked how you were sharing some of the, like we were talking about before. Sometimes I feel as a parent, you get judged about any choice you make. <laughs> Somebody's going to judge you along the way for what choice you made. And I just really want parents to know and moms to know we're always making the best choice we can for our child at that moment. But have you had that experience where you felt really judged or you feel like maybe um, someone questioned why you would move from you know Denver to St. Louis to put your child in this MOOC school, why you didn't choose another option or something? Have you felt that?
1: Not too terribly much. Zach and I are prepared for the day that somebody is very opinionated towards us about our decisions and how we are educating Abigail. But the culture in St. Louis, so St. Louis has the Central Institute for the Deaf and the Moog Center, and they're both listen and spoken language schools. CID has been around for, I think, over 100 years. And then Moog, I I think is 26 years old. And the, the adults that I've met in the community that have had cochlear implants that got implanted later in life that grew up in the St. Louis area, they really depended on lip reading. And then that was supported with some sign language. And all of those adults really, they always emphasize that we did Abby a favor by getting her implanted so young. And so we really had a lot more support in the community than people questioning it. But it's it's always so fascinating to see typical hearing people's reactions or kids reactions. When they see Abby's implants, when her hair is pulled back, you see her implants. They're always like, what is that thing? Even our neighbors, Abby will go outside and play with the kids and should run up and down the street. And she plays with these three girls at four days a week outside for over a year now. And they're like, she's deaf. They didn't even know because they, she took off her bike helmet and she, they saw their implants for the first time. So it's just, it's, The curiosity has been, it's been more enjoyable to educate the kids and even some like adult people that just have some honest questions about what it is, why we did it and things like that. Instead of feeling judged, it's been just answering people's curiosity.
0: Yeah, that's good. I think that's it. And I think it does depend on where you are and the community that's around you. And it sounds like that area is very Listening is spoken language focused, so that is really helpful for that. What else would you? I'm just trying to think of a good question. What's one thing you didn't ask but you wish you would have, like at the start of your
1: journey? Oh, admittedly, I don't think there was a question that we didn't ask. My husband is an auditor, and so we really went through this process with a fine tooth comb. We met with multiple different providers. We did not select providers until we were comfortable with one, and me being in the medical field, I had no issues, like challenging physicians.
0: I still think my first child, I'm pretty sure they wrote on her chart. Mom is (laughs) non-compliant. You know, wait,
1: I'm not non-compliant. I know what
0: you need to do. And this is not it.
1: (laughs) You want to be the expert for your kid. And so you just keep asking questions to educate yourself because at the end of the day, you're the, you're their biggest advocate until they can advocate for themselves. And for, for Abby, we really chose listen and spoken language and then planned on and still continue to plan on letting her choose ASL down the road. But all of the evidence supports the brain development that happens between zero and 36 months when you get your kids hearing devices, that's when all the neurons connect for language. And so that's when really their language is gonna develop. And so if you wait, it's just a steeper hill to climb for the kids. Where choosing a second language like ASL can be their, their, can be their second language. It can support the spoken language. But if you focus on the spoken language first, you can then let them, their world can be supported by ASL, but they can function and participate in a normal day-to-day life. And then they can just advocate for themselves and any accommodations that they need down the road.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. I think that's what we need to remember, right? We're our child's advocate until they can learn to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And when you look at that lens, asking all those questions is important. I think my all stars has been in 19 ENTs, not because I didn't like all of them. Some of it's because we moved, but because I want to find... I the nurse in me, let's say, I think if someone's not doing something 50 times a year, they're probably not doing enough of it. Like you want to see that repetitive, like you want to see a surgeon who's doing a lot of things. And then you also want to have options, right? There's sometimes it's just a different fit or a different feel, or we all don't know what we don't know. So maybe they haven't seen a kid like yours before. And that happens with mine because I have a rare disease that like they haven't seen a child like that. And so it's okay. I think I want parents to know it's okay to get a second opinion. It's okay to have a gut feeling that like, this is not the right place to be. Yeah. It's okay to question a provider and say, why are we going to do it this way? What are my options? Because sometimes I feel like parents feel like they just need to listen to the authority. And I don't think any authority is trying to hurt anybody, but, but like you said, we are our child's best advocate. And we are also we know more about them than anybody. We spend more time with them. And so you are the one who really can feel that that, that answer is right or correct, or you need to maybe move down a different path. But They see your child for seconds or minutes and then make a decision and we are with them all the time. I just really want parents to realize they can, they can ask questions and they can find a different opinion and they can find out what options are available in different places. Like you guys ended up moving and maybe that's not okay, but you can always ask for more. And one of my favorite questions in an IEP is what more can you do for my child? Not what do you need to, but is there anything more you can do? And just really questioning that. So yeah. Okay. Do you um, feel like, you're- oh yeah,
1: sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, one of the things that I leaned on really heavily was the early inter- the people who came for early intervention. Once you create that rapport and you're comfortable with them, I was asking them like, I don't know if I like, like this therapist, do you recommend someone else? Or I want a second opinion with an ENT. Who do you recommend? Because they're the ones, especially the educators or the people who show up to your home doing early intervention. They're the ones that see one kid after another so they're the ones that have experience and they hear the parents stories and complaints and compliments and so that's really how we ended up finding our surgeon was she made a personal phone call to a friend who was already overbooked and she made room for abby and then i asked her and i was like i don't love our surgeon here like it it, they're saying that we can wait but like all the evidence that we're finding is you don't want to wait and She's, I actually like this surgeon, but it might be a while before you can get into him and blah, blah, like, and she kept giving me excuses. Well, I ended up calling and I got in with his audiologist. And then she gave got me in with him. And then we decided to move. And then he referred me to his first trained fellow in St. Louis. And so I was just like, from one surgeon to another, tell me who's the best in the business. If you're not going to be my surgeon, who's the next person and who's the closest to St. Louis. And he's just he's in St. Louis. And he's like, the head at St. Louis Children's Hospital. I'm like, that's my guy.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a nurse enough to know how to navigate that system though. And my favorite question to ask is if this was your child, what would you do?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. It's just who are you sending your kid to when you're asking the professionals in, in that realm?
0: Because that gives them the ability to tell you who they would send their child to, but not actually recommend or prefer or keep professional confidences. So that's a really great question. Like,
1: Speaking from like one medical professional to another is that as a nurse, The more questions you ask, the more doctors have to educate you. And then oftentimes when they have to educate someone else on the the way they do things, they start to rethink how they do things. They don't only have to do it one way. There's a bunch of ways that we can get to the same end result. We can make everybody feel comfortable and confident in our care plan it's not just the doctor can only do it one way. Let's ask all the questions. Tell me why you're doing these things so that I know why you're touching my child and you're going to cut and give her an implant or things like that. There's so many questions that you can ask. And when you make people educate you, you make the best decision for your child, but then you also help the physician know exactly why he is yeah. doing what he's doing.
0: That being open and curious. There's lots of ways to get to the same end point. Right? Exactly. Yeah, What's just the best path for your child? How do you feel that Abigail's diagnosis has affected your family?
1: There's a lot of different dynamics. The grandparents have been hard, especially now that she's four and a half and she speaks so clearly and she holds conversations with strangers at the store. The grandparents really only see that. Or when we're at a, a family event, we both come from larger families. When there's a bunch of people in the room, They just yell across the room to get her attention. And then you can see people get frustrated when she's not listening. You're like, she can't hear the same as her cousin next to her. And she's not seeing your face. So um, having to tell your parents and siblings how to treat your child, as much as you don't want them to treat them differently, you don't have to treat them differently. You just have to recognize the limitations they have in a social setting. And that's really what you're there to teach your family for. Some people are more open to it than, than others. And that can be people. It's hard to recognize people's shortcomings, but at the end of the day, like your mom and dad, and you have to, like we said before, you're their advocate until it's their turn.
0: Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point. Hearing loss is an invisible disability. And especially our children who have good speech and language, people look at them and just make the assumption that they're a normal child. And as much as we want them to be seen as a normal child, that means that they're going to have some different behaviors that may be seen in a normal child as defiance, like not paying attention or being disinterested when really it's none of that. It's that it's a loud environment and it's they can't hear, they just don't know you're talking to them a lot of the times so that ha- I see that's a common theme I hear from parents is yeah. sometimes these kids get seen as being defiant, but really it's just because unless they know you're talking to them, they might not actually be listening. Cause listening is so much more work for them than it is for you and me.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's one example is I put Abby in swim lessons. Swimming is a, a big source of anxiety for me, even though I'm she, They're obviously the kids are never in the pool by themselves. They jump in and plants fall off and she can't, whether She grabs somebody, she can't hear them, whatever. She can't follow instructions if her implants are off. And so my goal has been to make her a really safe swimmer because we spent a lot of time in the pool in the summer. I put her in swim lessons for the first time over the winter this year. And it's an indoor swim school. And it's a relatively small pool, but there's probably 30 to 50 kids in it. And so I have a hard time hearing the parent next to me and I'm watching... Abby, but she's in a class with two other kids and she's unsafe. Like she keeps jumping in the water and the teacher speaks really softly. They have these face shields that muffle their mouth. And, I'm, and I am was like, this is a disaster. It is a safety disaster. And that has been really frustrating because even though you talk to the manager and the staff about pronunciating and raising your volume and making sure you look at her, they still have two other kids that they have to keep safe in a pool. And so it's not necessarily their biggest priority. And so there are accommodations that you have to make. And people think that you'll see, you'll just. Through experience, you'll just learn to navigate people watching and judgment. And whether it's a spoken judgment or just a side eye, you're, you're doing it for your kid. And that's really all that matters.
0: Yeah. So she's still currently at the MOOC school. And then what's the plan for after that?
1: So the goal for all of the kids is to be mainstreamed with their peers in kindergarten. I think she's on track to do that as well, obviously with the mask thing. They were having our kids wear masks in the hallway and in the common spaces up until last Monday. And then the adults are still wearing masks. We're ready for that to be taken down because I think with kids with hearing loss and learning communication, the tone and inflection is in people's facial expressions. And that's what I always, and so I'm not really, I'm waiting for them to take the masks off the adults for the kids, which hopefully is sooner rather than later.
0: But you bring up a good point. And I think the nurse knows that we need to keep people safe. So it's not that we don't need to keep people safe, but it is also, this is the thing that's really hard for our kids. Like my oldest started in Spanish. Like the first, when they were back they're actually back to in-person school, but they were wearing masks and she went for two days and she said, she called her counselor and said, I can't do this. And they're like, because she couldn't see her teacher's face and it's hard enough for you and I to learn Spanish as a second language, but now she can't see any of that facial expression. And then they said, well, what if she puts a clear mask on? She's it keeps fogging. And it was right. just like, really frustrating to her. And so we. She wanted to get pulled out of Spanish and she got put in a different class. And which was, and I was totally okay with that because that's one of those situations where we're asking this kid to do way too much with this situation. We want him safe, but then she, she, without that lip reading and that facial expression, it's really a struggle for her. And so that's been what's been so interesting about these masks. Is it's really, I, I know we need them and keep the people safe. But on the other hand, it's really been hard on my kids who have hearing loss because, especially like my teenager who's in high school, because the teachers do wear clear masks or they've done really good with accommodations in class but that's not where the sociality of high school comes from it's in the hall where it's like super noisy and if she can't see her friends faces and they're talking to her it's just so much work for her to carry on conversations because you and i already know the cafeteria is already loud and hallways are already loud like these are already hard listening environments and then you add the mask and it's like amazing to me that she has done so well like It gives me anxiety to think about that. I think it's just become normal and her friends know, and she has to tell me, in fact, we were talking about this the other day and she asked, said, I think my senior question is going to be quote it's going to be, Hey, I didn't hear that. Can you repeat it louder next time? Because she says, I have to tell my friends that so many times. And she's a really good advocate, but not, and not all kids are that way. And luckily she's really social and wants to be involved. If she was the kid who was like shy and didn't really want to participate, I think it would have just caused her to go in her shell and she would have just walked around school with no friends because it takes so much concerted effort for her to actually interact and communicate with people in those hard listening environments. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, the teachers were wearing, they came up with, they clear face shields and then cloth, like aprons, like drapes to give them the extra. And then all of the kids wore the Roger device and the receivers. So they were getting good access in the classrooms. And when they were doing like their two-on-one or their one-on-one therapies, but it's the socializing like in the hallway or in the cafeteria or out on the playground when you're teaching these kids to like, recognize that they're being unsafe. If they can't see your face and that you're serious about them putting their feet on the ground, <laughs> then it's just words. Or hey, sit in your chair, please. I was, I was doing a pizza day at her school and I could hear the teacher being like, and it was to Abby. And my rule with them is, your house, your rules, my house, my rules. So I never interject at school or in parent support or anything like that because you guys are the professionals and I support that. But I could hear in this teacher's voice that she's like, Abby, sit down. And she is, she's a mover and a shaker. So she does not like to sit down for a long time. And I think she said it like four or five times, Abby, sit down. And I finally went over and I pulled my mask and gave her the mom look. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, hey, uh... But to her, like it was just words. She couldn't understand how serious the teacher was being about you have to sit down and stop dancing around the table and climbing on your chair. It's it's just not safe. <laughs> and, right. and so like for me, witnessing that, I'm like, okay, is it time for the masks to come off for these kids?
0: Today is oh. the first day my kids got to go to school without their masks on. And actually, that's another interesting conversation because some of them, some of my kids have caused anxiety for, like, are we oh, going to yeah. pay? And I, just a lot of things. So it's just been a tough couple of years. So let's just hope and pray that we're on the out, uh, we can move on a little bit here. Yeah. Okay. I just really appreciate your time today, Courtney. Is there anything else that you would like to share thinking about the person who's just starting this journey?
1: Take one day at a time, ask your questions, and you are enough and you're exactly who your kiddo needs.
0: I love that. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the hearing mama's tribe podcast. I'm so appreciative for those who are willing to share their stories. And I hope as we share and listen to these stories that our hearts can be uplifted and we can find joy in this journey together. I welcome you into our tribe. If you're a parent, a mom, a dad, or a professional who serves these children and would love to share their story, please check out the show notes for how to get in touch. Please like, subscribe, share this with your friends, and leave us a review. That way more people will find this podcast. Thanks for being part of this journey.